You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Last week and this week, we are focusing uh, with Jesus at lay leadership. To Jesus, everyone, every one of us is a leader. And the question for Jesus is not, will we have influence in the lives of people around us? The question that Jesus puts to us this morning is, will we have the kind of joy that allows him to have influence in the lives of people around us? Jesus sends his followers out in mission, and then they return, 70 of them, filled with joy. And as they return, Jesus redirects their attention to a particular experience of joy. Would you open up your Bible to Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, which you'll find on page 844 of the Pew Bible. And if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me and let's read God's word aloud. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you may say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Well, I wouldn't think it would be hard for you to think of yourself as a leader in some form. Because Jesus has strategically placed each and every one of us where we can exert influence on people around us. He's placed us among friends whom we influence. He's placed us in a family where we have influence. He's placed us in places of work or study where we exert influence. We're placed in neighborhoods, in society. We're placed in relationship to the environment or a global community of which we are part. In all these ways, we, we may and should think of ourselves as influencers, as leaders. But what is so surprising to me just initially is how Jesus thinks about leadership in relationship to joy. He he sends out 70 followers. As Jason told us last week, he'd already sent out the 12, the apostles, but here is this ever-widening circle of inclusion among those who should see themselves as leaders. Now he sends out 70 others. And... He sends them out with this affirmation that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. He's got an abundance mentality about leadership. The harvest is an image of, and an experience of joy in ancient Israel. Here the earth brings forth its abundance after a long period of anticipation. 
And all of Israel empties out its towns and villages to find themselves at work in the field. It's hard labor, no doubt, but it's a labor of joy because there's celebration. We will eat. Uh, Look at how the earth abounds. And we work side by side with one another in the fields. So we bring food and wine and we bed down at night late under the stars to sing and to celebrate uh, this season. And so Jesus, when he looks at the leadership challenge that he gives you and me, sees a cause for joy. It's harvest time. Run out now. Run out now and use your gifts in leadership. If that's the way Jesus sends in joy, no different is the manner in which he receives us back. For as you just read in verse 17, Luke tells us that the 70 returned with joy. Lord! In your name, even the demons submit to us. You can just see the smiles on their faces. And Jesus returns the same gesture. And he, he gives us kind of the back end experience of what that looked like. I mean, to them, they were using their gifts in small ways. But Jesus has a, a much bigger perspective on it. He says, you know, what I, you know what I saw while you were out there? I saw Satan falling from heaven. Like a lightning bolt. So much joy. And yet Jesus says with all of that joy, he very graciously and gently redirects them. He he says here in verse 20, Nevertheless, don't just rejoice at this. Don't just rejoice at what you've accomplished. And and that is cause for joy. But be, be sure that your joy, the heart of your joy, is centered on this one thing, this one thing, that your names are written in heaven. Because Jesus understands that's where leadership springs. See, see, joy is the foundation for leadership. And joy sits on the foundation of grace. Those who would be kingdom leaders must lead from joy. And those who would have joy must have an experience of of grace. They must know that their names are written in heaven. And so Jesus reminds them. But to understand how he has created an experience that defines for them kingdom leadership, we'll have to have a little bit of a flashback. So I want to wind us back uh, into... um, this text a little bit and take you back to the beginning of chapter 10 which which I'll read for us because we see here that Jesus has contrived a kind of a leadership laboratory uh, a field trip in which his instructions shape for his disciples their understanding of what kingdom leadership is and it's distinctive so Luke tells us in verse 1 after this Uh, The Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I'm sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag. No sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. 
And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking. Whatever they provide for the laborer deserves to be paid. And do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. In in this exercise, in this laboratory for leadership, there are three particular things that I want to call to your attention. And, and you'll forgive, the, if, 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 forgive me if the image of a peanut butter jelly sandwich emerges in your mind as you hear these three words. Man, I think I must have been hungry when I thought of this. It's credible, spreadable, and edible. All right? <laughs> Kingdom leadership is credible, spreadable, and edible. I do have a thriving metabolism. Credible. Jesus wants his... Leaders to understand that kingdom leaders share leadership. Kingdom leaders will always lead in partnership with others. It's a team effort. They share leadership. It's interesting that, uh, as I've told you already, Luke has an interest in table fellowship, and he's going to be showing us Jesus at table again and again in his gospel, and then it continues to happen in another way throughout the book of Acts. But here we find the first table that Luke describes to us, At which Jesus is not visibly present. He's not apparently there. And this is going to create a credibility problem for his leaders. Right? I mean, Jesus' message was hard enough to believe when Jesus himself was there. When he did his miracles and and taught what he taught. But when Jesus is not there... I think we might hear people say to us what the demons said uh, in Acts. So, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? If they had trouble believing Jesus, they'll certainly have trouble believing us as we come knocking on the door. And the message, uh, by the way, you know what you get when you cross a Presbyterian with a Jehovah's Witness? Someone who knocks on the door but who has nothing to say. And, you know, Jesus doesn't want this problem. So he actually gives them a message. And I think he's given us, by the way, the same message. And it's very simple, which is good for Presbyterians also. It's this message. It's peace. When you knock on the door and it opens before you, here's what you're to say. Peace be to this house. And the word peace in Hebrew is shalom, which could be used as just a greeting. Hi. But no doubt Jesus here intends the richer, deeper Old Testament meaning of the word shalom. When you speak peace, speak the robust word of shalom, which speaks of fullness, of wholeness, of completeness. When you speak this word shalom, it's really a proclamation. It's the equivalent of saying the kingdom of God has come near to you. It's not just a proclamation, it's a, it's a benediction. 
You're calling down the peace of heaven upon this family at their home. It's not just a benediction. It's an assurance that everything for which God created, that the fullness of life as it's meant to be, not as we so often see it in the brokenness of this life, is coming into your life, coming into your home, coming into your family. Now that's a claim that bears some scrutiny. I mean, that's a dramatic claim that would be hard for anybody to believe, standing on the threshold, face to face with a stranger. And so what interests me is how Jesus makes provision for doubt so often. I find uh, Jesus has remarkable sympathy for us when we struggle to believe, struggle to find faith. He, he makes provision for it. And I, I think personally it's because Jesus himself struggled with faith. Yes, he's the son of God. Yes, there are all these strange stories that circulate around his childhood related to his birth and destiny. Uh, yes, uh, we, we find him at his baptism hearing the remarkable words, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But that affirmation will be tested immediately as he's sent out into the wilderness and tempted by Satan. And throughout his whole life, his opponents will come and challenge that simple truth that he's a beloved son. And especially at the end of his life, as he realizes his destiny and he travels within the shadow of the cross itself, Jesus will struggle with faith. And so he's very sympathetic. And he makes provisions for those whom his leaders will serve. He makes provision for their credibility. And, and, and we find it in verse 1 where Jesus, at the very beginning here, sends them on ahead of him in pairs, two by two. Now, if you knew your Torah, the Old Testament law, you would immediately recognize an echo here of the legal provision that God had given Israel for accusations and the credence you should give them. But the law had a provision that in essence said that if somebody should come against a member of the community with an accusation, as an individual, they have absolutely no legal standing. You cannot convict anybody on the basis of a single witness. So what he's doing is he's protecting the Innocent who might be falsely accused, but he's also protecting the community and the integrity of its beliefs. He's actually introducing a kind of a hermeneutic of suspicion. He's validating the legitimacy of, of doubt. He says, but, but when someone comes, someone else with the same charge, a second person uh, or a third witness or, or, or more, then, then, then give credence. And so Jesus sends out his witnesses in pairs. This is to help those who would otherwise doubt. But I think there's another reason Jesus is sending these in pairs, which lends to their credibility, and that is that as we find out, Jesus believes that there's something about his reconciling work, as he is reconciling all of creation to the Father, that becomes manifest in the reconciliation of one human being to another. And so on the night that he's betrayed, ironically, we find him on his knees praying to the Father a prayer for unity. May they love one another. May they be one, 
Father. May they be one so that, he says, the world may know, the world may have confidence that you have sent me. You see, the, the unity of the church is to testify, is to give credence to its profession that Jesus is God. Jesus has come in love for us. So he sends the kind of irreducible minimum that you could have for community out into these homes. He, he, he plants these little pods. He embeds them in other families' spa living spaces. Understanding that as these families witness the relationship between these two believers, how they reconcile, how they forgive each other, how they love each other, it's like nothing we've seen. There must be something to what they're telling us. I can't give any other account for the nature of their community. This is the kind of credibility that kingdom leadership has. And it's why kingdom leaders will always share leadership. They, they always prefer to lead in a team. They always find the strength of their leadership in relationship with other people who encourage them, who pray for them, who challenge them, who call them to be everything that Jesus calls them to be. Well, that's the first thing. Kingdom leaders share leadership. It's credible. The second thing is it's spreadable. What Jesus wants us to see here is that kingdom leaders are those who put others first. They put others ahead of themselves. This is countercultural, but this is what kingdom leaders will do. Notice that Jesus sends these to other people's tables. We might like to think that Jesus' strategy should be to call people to our table. And as far as I can tell, secular leadership theory basically describes the leader as somebody who can attract people to their vision, who can call people to their mission, who can gather people to their program. This would be effective leadership. If people want to or will, come to your table and get on board. And Jesus says, I got a different idea. A kingdom leadership is leadership that gives up your own table and engages with people at theirs, where they live. Kingdom leaders are those who leave their world behind and enter into the world of other people. Now, I just have a hard time with this, and this is perhaps why Dilbert is one of my favorite, he is my favorite cartoon. Let me give you an example of, I think, the brilliance of leadership, as I uh, oftentimes think it should be. Here's uh, Dilbert with one of his co-workers at a conference table, and the co-worker says, I have to disagree with you, Dilbert. He's very polite. But Dilbert is not thrown back on his heels for a second. He says, actually, you don't disagree with me. Co-worker says, I don't? No, you think you disagree with me, but you're mistaken. You're simply experiencing an illusion caused by the limits of your comprehension. <laughs> if you were able to fully comprehend both the problem and my recommended solution, you would agree with me. So what appears to be a difference of opinion is just you wrestling with your own defective brain. There's no reason to get the rest of us involved in that mess. <laughs> and kind of a leadership debrief. Here's, uh, here's Dilbert with Dogbert, and he says, uh, Have you ever noticed that clarity makes people angry? <laughs> oh. 
See, what, what Dilbert seems to in, in, in instinctively understand, what I seem to instinctively understand, unfortunately, is that if leadership is about bringing people to my table, the key skill will be persuasion. And at worst, coercion or manipulation. But for kingdom leaders who, who see their assignment as joining the table of other people, the key skill will be listening and empathy. And understanding. This is other-centered leadership. And I say it's spreadable. Because it's high impact. It's this leadership that has left a lasting mark on people's lives throughout history. Just a recent example comes from Bill Robinson. In Bill Robinson's book called Incarnate Leadership, he picks up a story from the Boston Globe a few years back. The... um, New England Patriots were undefeated coming into the 2008 Super Bowl. And then tragically, tragically, the New York Giants beat them. A a team that had not been thriving in the NFL uh, heretofore. And the Boston Globe picks up the little story within the big story, which to me is the big story. And it's a story about the coach named Tom Coughlin. Apparently, uh, Tom Coughlin hadn't been doing so well as a coach the last few years, as evidenced by the team's performance. And uh, the, um, his supervisor said, Thomas, uh, you, you're the coach this year, but we can't promise you anything for next year. Essentially, he's got a death sentence over him at the beginning of the season. And so this is an opportunity, uh, Tom Coughlin thinks, to have a leadership makeover, which he does. Changes his whole approach to leadership. And uh, here now they've had a successful season. They're at the Super Bowl. And 72 hours before the game, media day, uh, somebody puts a microphone into the hand of a child, eight or nine-year-old kid, and he runs up to Tom Coughlin. And uh, he says, this is what the kid says, I hear you've been a lot nicer this year. (laughs) And Coughlin laughs, and the media pool laughs. Who put you up to that? But here's what the Globe says. After going 8-8 and in the 2007 season, Tom Coughlin met with his veteran players. They told him he yelled too much, communicated too little, and listened barely at all. Veteran player Michael Strand calls the change, quote, a transformation. Sometimes I barely recognize him. And here's what Bill Robinson says. Tom Coughlin spent three years trying to change his players. It didn't work, so he decided to change himself. And that's what changed his players. Now they're all sporting Super Bowl rings. Other-centered leadership. It's spreadable. It's high impact. And it's precisely this strategy as sketched for Jesus, for his early followers, that transformed the world. University of Washington sociologist Rodney Stark wrote a great book called The Rise of Christianity. Uh, groundbreaking in many respects, because before he wrote the book, it used to be thought that, by, that really the reason the church was so large by uh, 312, AD 312, uh, the rule of Constantine, was because there must have been mass conversions uh, or coerced baptisms. And Rodney Stark went back and looked at the evidence. He says, you know, I think it owes itself to a entirely different reason. Uh, and he, 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 what he said, showed is he, he said rough numbers in AD 40, uh, around the time of Pentecost, let's figure a thousand believers. In AD 300, around the time of Constantine, he figures 6.3 million followers of Jesus Christ. 
two and a half centuries, from 1,000 to 6.3 million, which, by the way, at that point is more than 10% of the entire Roman Empire. One out of every 10 people is a follower of Jesus Christ at that point. And, and Ronnie Stark goes, that's a conversion rate of 40% uh, per decade. And he went, because he's a sociologist of religion, and showed that this was what the Mormons had been experiencing recently in America, that actually you could get 40% per decade conversion rate. And he looked at how the Mormons were doing this. When the Mormons had a missionary cold call, in other words, enter into someone's life that they did not know, their success rate was one convert per 1,000 calls. However, when a missionary entered into someone's home and there was a friend of the person who was not a convert yet, their conversion rate was one out of two. Fifty percent of the time, in the context of relationship, people were converting to Mormonism. So Rodney Stark, he looks then at the historical data to see if maybe this is what's happening. He, he makes the conclusion that the followers of Jesus had learned how to move out of their own world into the social networks of the people around them. They knew how to involve themselves in the lives of other people. See, our whole paradigm way of thinking of church is wrong. We think that we're supposed to get people to come to church. We're trying to rupture existing social networks to rip them out and embed them in a new social network. And, and, and Rodney Stark is saying, that's not what Jesus was doing. His followers were going out into existing social networks that were already wired. And then the gospel fired the synapses and the whole grid lit up. Other-centered leadership. Kingdom leaders put others first. It's spreadable. Finally, we see that it is also edible. And here, what I mean to say is that kingdom leaders lead with grace. With grace. And, and when we come to the heart of the whole matter, because it, were it not for the experience of grace, the edibility at the Lord's table... There would be no spreadability and there would be no credibility whatsoever. Remember, leadership is founded upon joy and joy is founded upon grace. And Jesus wants to give his future leaders a very dramatic, lived parable that convinces them of their need for grace and of its availability in himself. So in verse 4, he gives these otherwise bizarre instructions. He says, carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Now why? Why radically un under-resource your emissaries just as they go out for such an important mission? Why would he do that? Well, the purse is what you'd carry money in. Uh, the bag is a kind of a traveler's bag like we might call a knapsack. You'd put your food and supplies in there. And... Uh, Sandals, perhaps it's an extra pair, or maybe he just wants them to go barefoot for a while, which wouldn't be uncommon in the first century. But you see, he strips them of the means of independence right at the very beginning. As I've thought about this, I thought, why would he do that? One reason is it pushes them into action immediately. I mean, it would me. If Jason and I had been sent by Mark on a mission... Uh, like Jesus has sent these disciples, and we had a credit card in our pocket, 
You know, I'm thinking we'd walk around for a while and we'd go, should we knock on that door? Eh, let's walk a little further. Uh, should we knock on that door? I don't know. Let's walk a little further. Let's pray another time. Uh, we're looking for someone who looks lonely and needy and that might just be willing to hear some good news from a couple of guys like us, right? Pretty soon we're buying ourselves lunch because we haven't found anything and we're going to have to find a room at the inn because it's been a long day and we'll get at this tomorrow. Jesus says, that's not going to be a possibility for you because you're not taking any food and you're not taking any money. And if these disciples have half the metabolism that I have, two hours in, I guarantee you they'll be sitting down at someone's table for lunch. They'll be in a house. Right? I would be. Why? Because I'm getting hungry. Now, it's not just to motivate action, but I, I realize there's something more going on here. This week, uh, last week on Friday night, Ann and I, my wife, we were... Um, walking down the Ave, and we decided to turn in for some ice cream at haagen And uh, something happened there that surprised me. The store was full. It was freezing cold, so we stood outside the glass, and there was another gentleman that was there, just uh, him and us, and uh, a short, stocky uh, guy with a jovial face. And we got talking with each other. His name is Lalo, and uh, he's from Mexico, came here via Chicago, and we just had a delightful conversation. And with time, we began to move inside the store in this long queue. And at one point, I, I happened to um, see Lalo surreptitiously reach into his pocket and take a peek at a wad of cash. And he just kind of checked it. And then he put it back in his pocket very quickly. And he looked at me and looked at Ann and he said very politely, May I please buy you ice cream tonight? And I immediately said, no, of course not. And I turned bright red. But he insisted. I kept changing the subject, and as the line was moving along, he kept bringing it back up. And finally I said, why, why, why would you buy us ice cream? And he thought about that for a second. And he said, because I'm happy. And because I have a job. And because you seem like nice people. I'm enough of a jerk still to have said, no, that's very nice of you, but we're going to buy our own ice cream. As we moved to the cash register, the pressure was building. I could tell I wasn't going to get out of this. And he, he finally just made it very clear he was going to be paying for our ice cream. So I said, okay. And you know, I had never had one of those huge ice cream cakes before. Um, <laughs> And the server, she had figured out what was happening. And I have never seen anybody ever receive a larger medium ice cream, especially at haagen than this guy got. Just mounded with ice cream. It was a celebration. Now, how do you think that experience made me feel? I'll tell you what, my face did go red. I was humbled by that. I was humbled by his generosity towards me. And the other thing is I was profoundly grateful just for everything after meeting Lalo. Just for everything. For having a job, for being happy, and for having friends. And I'm realizing as I'm studying this passage that this is exactly the experience Jesus wants his leaders to encounter. I was mugged by grace. Someone, a stranger came up from behind and just put money in my wallet. <laughs> And he says, when I send you out, I, I don't want you to have any money in your wallet because I want you to come into other people's homes and watch them provide for you. I have homes in which you will find food. 
You need the grace that you're talking about every bit as much as they need the grace that you're sharing with them. And I don't want my leaders walking around here thinking that they are full and having pity for the little people who don't yet know what they know. I don't want my leaders walking around here thinking, I've been to the end of life's journey and I've come back just to give you a few tips for your own. I want my leaders to come and engage with those to whom I send them in service to have a feast around a common table in which all delight in my grace. Jesus says, this is where joy comes from. Do not rejoice in your accomplishments, in your performance. Oh, you're going to be a great leader, but don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You belong to me. Grace is this radical disjunction between our acceptance and our performance. Robert McGee says, here's the lie of Satan. Self-worth equals performance plus the opinion of others. But you could never win that game. You could never win that game. Jesus says, no, that's not the way my leadership equation works. It's you are accepted in my love unconditionally. And out of that, you have joy to share. Kingdom leadership is about spiritual confidence, not leadership competence. We can't lead without it. So, credibility. With whom are you partnering in leadership? Who are your people encouraging you as a leader, demonstrating with you the reconciling possibilities of the peace of God's kingdom? Spreadability. Into whose lives are you ready now to move? People at home, people in your family, people at work, people at school. Are you prepared to orient your life around them, not asking them to orient around you? You will be if your gospel is edible. If you come to this table and experience a God who loves you so much as to empty himself and to lead you in weakness, that you might be filled with joy and strength to lead others. Can you find in Jesus Christ that your name is written in heaven? And to know the kind of joy that thrusts us into leadership. Let's pray that we can. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have not called to us from heaven. But you have come down. You have taken on flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. To lead us, not from above, but from beneath, from beside. And it gives us joy. And it makes us want to take that leadership style on ourselves. Wherever we are influencers now, we pray that by your spirit, we would be kingdom leaders. We thank you for this joy. We celebrate it today in worship. And as we offer our tithes and offerings, we pray it just would be about funding a budget, but that it would be about lives responding in joy as stewards of all that we are and all that we have and the rich gifts that you've given us laid at this altar that they might be shared with those who have need, just as we have need. So we pray again that your spirit would go with these gifts to give witness on our behalf around the world to the presence and peace of Jesus Christ. 
in whose name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.